Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. How do we stop the 27 men who run America? This is a a startling new report about 27 right-wing billionaires who basically own the GOP, half of all the funding. We'll talk about that. Also, Professor Richard Wolf will be with us. What would happen if there was no Fed? What's the alternative? There's a bunch of Republicans who are saying, oh, we need to close down the Fed. What? How does that work? The Bannon trial, they're kicking his butt around the courtroom. The uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Gutierrez, has a new warning for humanity saying that we, we face collective suicide over the climate crisis if we don't do something now. I'll share the details of that with you. It's pretty amazing. Also, Dr. Trita Parsi is going to drop by about the situation with the Saudis and the Iranians. You know, what's the deal with what we're doing with the Saudis and how does this relate to the possibility of a relationship with Iran? And also, the Republican Party wants to abolish the Department of Education in the name of freedom. And you'll never guess who's leading the charge this last weekend in Florida. We'll talk about that. And also... Turns out that the spokesman for the Secret Service who's been saying, oh, no, no, it was all routine. We just, you know, we sorry we deleted those messages, but we didn't know. Um, This guy was the same guy who was the top spokesman for the Chicago Police Department when Laquan McDonald was murdered by the police department. And he's the guy who came out and said, no, we don't have any audio of his murder, this is when the cops were calling him racist names, we don't have any audio because of software issues or operator error. And then we later learned that they had just hidden that audio. This is the same guy who's telling us now that the Secret Service can't tell us what the text messages were. And his boss, or former boss, the, well actually current boss, the Inspector General, who is overseeing the Secret Service, was a Trump appointee who has covered up previous Secret Service scandals. This thing is really starting to stink. But to start out, my op-ed today over at HartmanReport.com is titled, Can We Stop the 27 Men Who Run America? We have had three major eras. Uh, you, You could perhaps argue a fourth one in the 1830s, but it it gets real complicated there. But basically, we've had three major eras in the United States where we took on great wealth. 
The first was the American Revolution. We declared, we declared a, uh, an independent state against the richest man in the world, King George II at that time, and the corporation that his family started in, in December of 1601, Queen Elizabeth I, uh, that his family started and in which he was the major stockholder, which was the East India Company. Then in the 1930s, well, again, we took on the very, the morbidly rich because through the 1920s, we reached these massive levels of inequality where the rich got obscenely richer and the poor got poorer. It was called the Roaring Twenties, but it was only roaring for people on, on Wall Street. And FDR took those people on and took them down. And now here we are again. This is, you know, what got me thinking about this is this amazing study that just came out from Americans for Tax Fairness. And I published parts of that study in my op-ed today. Let me just read you two quotes from this. This is just breathtaking. The nation's roughly 750 billionaires are increasingly using their personal fortunes and the profits of connected corporations to drown out regular voters' voices and elect hand-picked candidates who further rig the nation's economy, especially the tax system, to make their wealthy benefactors even richer. This anti-democratic vote buying totaling $1.2 billion in the 2020 election cycle has expanded greatly in recent years. Now, this was facilitated in, in smaller part by earlier Supreme Court decisions, Buckley in 76, Bellotti in 78, but really mostly this started in 2010. In 2010, we got Citizens United, and Citizens United said, unlimited, guys. Actually, McCutcheon, three years later, 2013, said, un, you know, completely unlimited. But by and large, Citizens, said, Citizens United said, unlimited, you can own as many politicians as you want. You can own them as comprehensively as you want. When you give those politicians money and they do what you want them to do, that is not called bribery anymore. That is called free speech. And, you know, America gets run based on free speech, and whoever has the most money now gets the most speech. And so that's why it's been 30 years since really Congress has done anything consequential. Because it started, this really started in 76, 78. And, you know, Reagan came into office, and that was it. The Republican Party got bought out by these right-wing billionaires, and here we go. So that's my first quote. Here's the second one. Billionaires pump $1.2 billion into the 2020 elections, almost 40 times more than the $31 million they donated in 2010 when the Citizens United rules were first in effect. In the 2020 election cycle, billionaires contributed nearly one out of every $10. They are 0.01% of all donors contributing over 200 bucks. They are one one hundredth of 1% of the donors, but they contributed 10% of all the money, one out of $10. Just in the first two years of the pandemic, these billionaire GOP donors, these 27 donors who contributed half of all the money to the two largest Republican super PACs, the, the congressional one and the, and the Senate one. Just during the two years of the pandemic, those 27 billionaires made an extra $82 billion. Out of that $82 billion, they took $1 billion of it and invested it in politics. And as a result, they're getting back tens of billions in additional profits and lower taxes. It turns out that investing in politicians and ballot initiatives 
is the best investment you can make these days. You know, uh, J.B. Pritzker, who is a progressive billionaire, he's the governor of Illinois, and he proposed a, uh, a law, it was called the Fair Tax in Illinois back uh, a year or so ago, and uh, it would have lowered taxes on people earning $100,000 or less and raised taxes on people making a million dollars or more. Wouldn't have affected anybody making between 100000 and a million. Lower taxes on average people, raise taxes on people who earn over a million dollars. You'd think that would be a no-brainer, right? And it would have raised $3 billion for the, for the state of Illinois and closed a budget hole. But Ken Griffin, who is, uh, at the time was a resident of Illinois, he's since moved to Florida where there is no state income tax, Ken Griffin spent $54 million of his own money to carpet bomb the state with ads saying, oh, the Democrats are up to it again. You can't trust them. They're going to raise your taxes. Yes, they're going to start out with rich people. And next in, in line is you. And the good citizens of Illinois, I mean, you know, advertising sells. There's a reason why you see ads on TV all the time, right? And, and on this radio show, for that matter, because advertising works. And it worked in this case. And the people of Illinois bought Ken Griffin's pitch. And it turns out, according to this uh, 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 study now from ProPublica, that Ken Griffin would have paid an extra $51 million in income taxes that year. He spent $54 million of his own money to stop the raising of his taxes, which would have cost him $51 million that year. But in an average year, that was a very soft year. I mean, that was the pandemic year. In an average year, he would have paid an extra $80 million a year in taxes. So this was not an expense for this guy, for this billionaire. It was an investment. And the Supreme Court says, yeah, you can do that. It's all good. No problem. So here we are now. We're in a full-blown oligarchy. And the question is, can we get out of it now that the oligarchs have largely taken over? They certainly control the Republican Party, and they control enough of the Democratic Party to stop any progress. What do we do? Well, Congress has the power to overturn Supreme Court decisions. And the For the People Act would have overturned large parts of Citizens United. It was defeated in the Senate. It passed the House. It was defeated in the Senate by every single Republican and Manchin and Cinema. If we can get a couple more good progressive Democratic senators in the Senate, we might be able to pass that in the next two years and get, you know, and reform our election system. I'm actually still hopeful. I think between abortion and guns and climate, there's gonna be a Democratic blowout this fall and maybe we can do this next year. Ronnie in Orange County, California. Hey Ronnie, what's on your mind today? How are you doing? Uh, professor, I'd like for you to pontificate on a California people's oil refinery. Basically, my request for you to pontificate is for the governor, Gavin Newsom, to bid and purchase an oil refinery in California because we are the highest priced and basically do a Green Bay sweep for oil in California. You want to essentially uh, nationalize, uh, I realize it would be at the state level, but I don't know that there's a word for state, but nationalize the oil industry in California or part, part of it. Yes, right. States' rights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's going to be up to the citizens of California. I guarantee you 
you know, I think this should be done with banking, too. And, there, and there's been serious conversation about creating a Bank of California. There's only one of the uh, state bank in the United States that's in uh, either North or South Dakota. And it has provided, North you know, yeah, North Dakota, thank you. It has provided low, low interest loans to people in that state for, you know, for, a, for over a century now. I think it was uh, created in 1919 uh, or maybe 1909, long time ago. But, you know, during the progressive era. But I guarantee you that the first thing that would happen, the minute you start saying, oh, the state is going to buy a refinery, is the Republicans would come out of the woodwork yelling and screaming that that's communism. You're trying to turn California into Venezuela. And it would actually be a, a, a fairly effective thing, political hit on I was Democrats. <laughs> so I, I was thinking Venezuela as well. I was thinking the same thing uh, before I uh, got picked up on the call. Uh, that they would holler that. However, it doesn't stop the fact of taking a low-hanging fruit oil refinery and giving it a shot. Now, the, the other the other problem, Ronnie, is the governor is, run against the, the other uh, problem is against. then for a state that's trying to get off fossil fuels, you'd now have the state making money on fossil fuels, or at least you know running refineries on fossil fuels and offering you know cheaper gasoline, which encourages people to keep driving gas gas-powered cars. So. I'm, I'm concerned about the perverse incentives there. Okay, go for it. I, I, I got a quick answer. San Onofre, I'm in Orange County, which is blue for the last four election cycles. Woo-hoo! Yeah, anyway, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, trust me, I live here. Anyway, um, I say that uh, we tied that to cleaning up the spit rods in San Onofre. Uh, to the DOD levels. We're not trying to uh, make it pristine. We're trying to do it to the DOD levels and uh, basically all for a carrot. All for a carrot? A carrot by Gavin Newsom saying that we will work on cleaning up San Onofre. We shut it down. Mm-hmm. We shut San Onofre down, I can't remember, maybe 12 years ago. Yeah. But you tie you. That's uh, a I nuclear power plant. You know, that's not a refinery. Uh, saying you're going fossil fuels, but I'm saying we're going to clean up nuclear fuels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would just think that if the state is going to spend money on energy, that instead of buying and operating a refinery, it would be better to build and operate. And frankly, I think PG&E needs to be busted up and, and, and should be oh, nationalized right about to, to, to build and operate solar and wind operations. Ronnie, thanks for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On the line with us is our buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, including his most recent, The Sickness Is the System, When, Corporate, when Capitalism Fails to Save Itself from, uh, or Save Us, excuse me, from Pandemics or Itself. Democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com, profwolf on Twitter uh, with two fs. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Ron Paul was on this hobby horse for most of my lifetime of end the Fed. Um, but, you know, that now there are Republicans, particularly at the state level, there's been a bunch of Republicans, uh, you know, these, these uh, uh, sovereign citizen type, uh, like out of Idaho, who are claiming that the Fed is some part of some international communist conspiracy designed to destroy America and we need to end the Federal Reserve Board. Seems like it's a good time for a, uh, a primer on, or primer, however you pronounce that word, on, on what is the Fed, why is the Fed, and what would happen if we did that, if we got rid of the Fed? Okay, <clears throat> there are two ways to answer this question. The first is with a little bit of history. Uh, every capitalist country has a central bank. Uh, every capitalist country has long ago discovered that if you leave the question of money, the central issue of capitalism, if ever there is a central issue, uh, if you leave that in private hands, the private folks, the banks and others who control it will abuse that control, will use their control of money uh, to profit themselves and to destabilize the larger economy that relies on money. So you take it away from the private, at least in part, and you give the government a kind of oversight, a kind of dominating role, and that institution that does that is called the central bank. Uh, in England, it's called the Bank of England. In France, it's called the Bank of France, and so on. We can't do that here because we have a prior history in the 19th century of something called the Bank of the U.S. that got caught up, you're surprised, uh, by corruption and misuse. And so we didn't have a central bank for a while. We suffered the results of not having it. So at the beginning of the 20th century, basically, uh, the decision was made, let's have our own central bank, but we called it a funny name, the Federal Reserve. Uh, so that's how we have it. Its job is to do pretty much what central banks do everywhere. So now let's change the focus and talk about that. Capitalism, and this is the key issue, is an unstable economic system. Every four to seven years, wherever capitalism has settled in, it has had a cycle, a crisis, a downturn, a recession, a depression. We have a lot of words for it because it's always, if not upon us, coming near anytime soon. Like we're all now wondering when the recession will hit that we're due for either later this year or early next. And so long ago, people complained 
businesses, individuals, workers, this instability is intolerable. As I used to say to my students in classes, if you lived with a roommate as intolerable as capitalism, you would have, as unstable as capitalism, you would have moved out long ago. Well, we can't move out of our societies for the moment. So efforts were made to try to control it. The most important of these was the work of John Maynard Keynes. In the United States and Britain in the 1930s, our capitalism collapsed. Mr. Keynes in Britain figured out two basic ways for the government to step in and to do something when the economy tanked to come in there, and sometimes if it didn't tank, if it shot up in an inflation like we have now. One of the two things is called monetary policy. That's the Federal Reserve's job, is to apply monetary policy. Very simple to explain. If the economy is going down, you lower the interest rates so that people can have an easier, cheaper time borrowing because you hope if borrowing is easier and cheaper, more businesses and people will do it and that will put people to work. If you have an inflation, the opposite, well, then you raise interest rates as we are doing literally this month in order to slow down the spending of money in the hopes that that will persuade businesses not to raise their prices, at least not as much as before. That's all. No conspiracy, no nothing. It's an attempt by a system that is very unstable, that has never figured out how to prevent that instability from playing out over and over again, to try to limit the damage, to have an authority come in and do something with interest rates uh, in order to try to keep some problem from not exploding into a full-scale uh, collapse. And by the way, Mr. Keynes's other policy is called fiscal policy. There are only two, monetary, fiscal. Monetary is playing around with the money system. Fiscal is having the government raise or lower taxes, raise or lower spending. There we have it. The government's job through monetary policy and fiscal policy is to offset, to limit to constrain the inherent instability of the system. An intelligent person watching this for the last century and living through it now would, I hope, be able to cognize, to have in their brain the question, why do we keep lamely and ineffectively trying to compensate for an unstable system when we could and should ask the question, Maybe there's a system different from this one that isn't so unstable in the first place. Does not Cuba have a central bank? Yes, they all, everybody does. Oh, okay. Even, even, even socialist countries have what they used to call socialist countries, uh, have their central bank. Bank of China does this in China. Russia has a bank that does it in Russia. Yeah, everyone has this because until you do go beyond the employer-employee way of organizing enterprises, both state and private, until you go beyond that, you're going to have these decisions made by employers that have uh, 
a structure, if you like, that produces these cycles. We've had them for three centuries. We've never stopped it. We've never overcome it. We are literally awash today in conversation about the inflation we're in and the recession that's coming down the pike, as if we haven't been through this a million times in the last century and a half. There's nothing new. There's nothing surprising. Actually, there is a new and surprising thing that we would think that it's new and surprising. That will worry us. <laughs> I get it. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Professor Richard Wolf. I appreciate your dropping by today. And thank you for the, the lesson in central banking. All right. Thank you. Great talking with you. Your media support group for We the People. So let's pick up your phone calls here. Lisa in St. Joe, Michigan. Hey, Lisa, what's up? Oh, hey, I just wanted to make a point that, I mean, we complain all the time about the Democrat messaging, but every time a political Democrat is before the media, they need to start every dialogue and end it with, it is a worldwide inflation. The Republicans have no solution other than Senator Scott cut Social Security. Now, they use the fancy word reform, but they're trying to advertise this as Biden's inflation. They go on all the talk shows, Biden's inflation, and to come back, worldwide inflation. What are their um, solutions? And then just the other thing, people, I'm as frustrated with Manchin as you guys are, but come on, we don't want him switching parties tomorrow. And we got Brown Jackson. What we need to do, and I'm hoping I agree with you, I think people are going to be really angry because we need the majority in the Senate. We don't have it. 50-50 is nothing. We need to pick up some more senators. So instead of going after Manchin, um, let's send our money, send our effort to some of these states that look like we might pick up some Democratic senators. Right. And I, I, it's I'm with you. I'm with you. But Lisa, Lisa, let, let me let me lay a, a, a hypothetical to you. Robert Reich this week suggested that going to the going to the electorate, going to the voters this fall, and saying, "Yeah, we got a 50-50 Senate, but we need more senators. Please send us more senators, even though we control the Senate," is about the weakest, lamest argument you can make that Robert Reich, the former labor secretary in the Clinton administration, very smart guy, professor at the University of California, uh, Robert Reich says, please let Joe Manchin go to the Republicans. Lose control of the Senate. So then you can run on, we need to seize control of the Senate. Because most of your low information voters, all they know is, hey, Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the White House. Why aren't they doing a damn thing? They don't know about the subtleties of this stuff. I think that's absolutely insane. And those late races are going to be razor close as it is. We already know what they've done with the voting rights in most of those states. So to take that, take that kind of risk is just crazy. I mean, it's, it, it, trust me, people, if Mitch is in control and they have the House, we will never, ever get Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you about that. His his point was that that is a more compelling 
argument going into the election. I'm not sure that most people who are voting for their senator at the state level are thinking in terms of national strategy. They're thinking about this guy versus the other guy or this person, you know, this candidate versus the other candidate. But okay, Lisa, thank you. Thanks for weighing in. Martin in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Martin, what's on your mind today? Um, well, I just think that messaging is really the main problem. The Republicans have pulled in so much power over the past, I don't know, eight or ten years running on fear. Going back to 9-11, fear of the Muslims, fear of this, under your bed, you know, people coming in to get your children. They're going to take your guns. They're going to put you in a concentration camp. And, it's, it, it, you know, you've talked about low-information voters. Americans respond to fear. But we should be running on a fear message that actually comes with a resolution to the fear. Climate change. Why aren't we running ads in Arizona where every Arizonan can see that Lake Mead is almost completely gone? And let them know that next year they'll be paying $5 uh, for a gallon of water. Yeah. And the produce in California, you know, going away. You want to talk about inflation? How about an $8 tomato? Because there's no water to grow fruit. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Martin, thank you. Uh, climate change is not just an existential threat in terms of, you know, species loss, including the human species, but also, you know, it's, it, it ties into inflation and other things, economic issues. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The Secretary General of the United Nations is warning the world. And I have a feeling right now a lot of Europeans are sitting up going, whoa, because you've got, uh, you know, 104 degree temperatures in the United Kingdom today, literally in the entire thousand year plus written history of the United Kingdom, it has never ever been 104 degrees. And you know, now they've got wildfires uh, sweeping across Spain and France and Italy. It's, it, Europe is on fire. It's starting to look like California. And uh, only 4% of the homes in London have air conditioning. That's how abnormal this weather is. The, you know, the homes, the homes in, in Europe and particularly in the UK are designed to keep you warm and dry rather than cool. And so in the face of this, the Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, uh, Mr. Gutierrez, has come out and said, uh, quote, 
half of humanity is in the danger zone. He was speaking, by the way, at a conference, uh, the Petersburg Climate uh, Dialogue, which is put on by the German government, has been every year for the last 18 years, excuse me, 13 years. And uh, he said, quote, half of humanity is in the danger zone from floods, droughts, extreme storms, and wildfires. No nation is immune. Yet we continue to feed our fossil fuel addiction. We have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. It is in our hands, end quote. Now, just to put a punctuation mark on this, you know, Europe is rapidly transitioning to electric vehicles. I mean, really rapid, like in Norway, uh, starting next year, I believe it is, maybe the year after, it will be illegal to even sell a, an internal combustion engine. And that kind of law is spreading across Europe. Uh, Europeans have figured out, you know, it's, it's cheaper. There are cheap electric vehicles out there. They're, they're available in the United States. The, the Chevy Bolt, you know, the, the Nissan Leaf. These are inexpensive cars. They're cheaper than the median price of an internal combustion car in the United States. And what does it cost to fill up an electric car? A 200-mile range electric car filling up at the, at the average price of electricity in the United States costs between 6 and $10, depending on where you live, for 200 miles. That's pretty impressive, right? So the Europeans know this. But here in the United States, there's literally not a political party left in Europe that denies climate change. Even Marine Le Pen's nationalist front Nazi party is, is, is acknowledging climate change. And yet here in the United States, I defy you to name one Republican who will say that climate change is real and caused by human activity. There are a few who will say, oh yeah, it's getting warmer. That's because we're getting closer to the sun or because of the sunspots or, or be because of, I mean, they got these wacky theories, right? The space aliens are doing it to us. But what's really, you know, what's really happening is that they're all taking their money from right-wing billionaires who make their money on fossil fuels. And yes, I get it. There's a couple of Democrats in that, in that camp. Joe Manchin in the Senate is still refusing to do anything about climate change. I'm not sure that he's denying it anymore, but hey, you know, when you make a half a million bucks a year off coal, it's hard to say, you know, we really need to get rid of coal. But the, today, there is a, an extreme heat warning in the United Kingdom. Tomorrow, they're supposed to get some relief. But this has been going on for a couple of days. And this meeting in, in, uh, in Germany is uh, apparently a, a, a plenary session, a, pre, you know, a preparation for uh, laying out potential frameworks for the uh, COP27 UN Climate Summit that will be in uh, November, and they're going to hold in Egypt this year. So the Secretary of the General of the United Nations asking a, a serious question. Do we take collective action and defy the fossil fuel billionaires in the United States and around the world? Or do we all commit suicide as a species? Or species, I guess singular. I'm in favor of collective action. And the only way we'll get there here in the United States is to vote Republicans out of office. It is that 
simple. Meanwhile, Betsy DeVos, our, edu- our erstwhile education secretary, is uh, calling for the end of the department that she used to run, the Department of Education. Now, you know, the Department of Education has a long and storied history. It, it helped bring us and spread across the United States things like public schools. You know, I mean, Department of Education has been doing good stuff, generally speaking. We have had, you know, it has been under assault. Now, I remember, you know, I I was in elementary school during the Eisenhower administration, and I remember when Sputnik went up, and my dad would take me out in the backyard, and we'd see this little dot just slowly moving across the sky, and he's like, that's the first satellite. The Russians put it up. It was 1957. I was six years old. And Dwight Eisenhower, our Republican president, responded to that by saying, we need to raise a generation of scientists. And he raised a bunch of money for gifted kids all across the United States. And they came to our school, our our little elementary school. This was the following year. I was in first or second grade. They came to our little elementary school and they were doing all these IQ tests and everything else, trying to identify the gifted kids. And and me and a a kid named Terry in in our particular classroom got pulled out and put into this fast track program. I've, I've told this story before. It's been probably a few years, but I'm not, I won't go into all the, all the details. It was, it was great though. I mean, I learned so much. By the time I was done with sixth grade, I was, I was doing high school and college level work in math and reading and in, in other areas. Had a couple of years of foreign language and all, all kinds of stuff. But then we got Ronald Reagan. And Reagan came along and said, uh, no more money for gifted kids. And let's put a complete ass in charge of the Department of Education to take it down a notch. And he put Bill Bennett in charge of the Department of Education. Just to give you a sample, you know, an, an understanding of who this guy was and how he thought. Now, keep in mind, this is the guy... You know, he, Betsy DeVos is his uh, intellectual heir, right? She was the head of the Department of Education as well. The one, the one who is now, who Donald Trump put in charge of the Department of Education, who just this weekend told a conference, the uh, Moms for Liberty conference, that we need to do away with the Department of Education. Now, the, the programs for gifted kids that Reagan killed off never came back. But, you know, we still support elementary school education, right? No, Betsy DeVos says, no, we shouldn't. And this, as I said, this all goes back to Reagan. I, I keep telling you, Louise, Louise keeps saying, you know, when Tom dies, I'm going to put it all started with Reagan on his tombstone. But this is Bill Bennett. This is the guy that Ronald Reagan put in charge of the Department of Education. But I, I do know that it's true that if you wanted to reduce crime, you could, if that were your sole purpose... You could abort every black baby in this country and your crime rate would go down. That would be an impossible, ridiculous, and morally reprehensible thing to do. But your crime rate would go down. That's the intellectual genius that Ronald Reagan put in charge of the Department of Education. No kidding. And now we've got Betsy DeVos at this Moms for Liberty summit. By the way, she's not the only one who's saying we need to stop public education. Uh, Thomas Massey, the guy who, uh, his Christmas card picture 
I've, I've, I put it in one of my recent uh, uh, Hartman Report newsletters, um, you know, where, where he and his wife and his four sons were, uh, maybe they weren't all sons, but anyhow, his four kids, maybe five kids, as I recall, were all holding uh, assault weapons. And, the, and it said, Santa, bring ammo, right? He's introduced a bill, actual legislation, to abolish the Department of Education. He says, unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. should not be in charge of our children's intellectual and moral development. The bill's co-signers, by the way, include Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates. Right. Matt Gates wants to get rid of public education. But it's such a fertile hunting ground for him. Now, he's a big fan of those high school girls. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So uh, on the line with us is uh, Dr. Trita Parsi, the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Quincy, I-N-S-T dot org is the website or responsiblestatecraft.org. His Twitter handle is tparsi, P-A-R-S-I. Dr. Parsi, welcome back to the program. President Biden just came back from Saudi Arabia. You know, this whole issue with regard to the Iran nuclear deal seems to be, you know, totally screwed up. Obviously, you know, Donald Trump blew this thing up. You write uh, over at Common Dreams, you wrote a piece that says, if oil prices are really the driving force behind Biden's, you know, negotiations with the Saudis, then he should have just gone back into the Iran nuclear deal through an executive order. Can, can you explain to me what that, how, how that could be done? Yes, yeah, so one of the big mistakes that the Biden administration did uh, is that they just didn't go back into the Iran nuclear deal right away. They thought that they had to negotiate their way back and try to get a longer and stronger deal. Uh, what they could have done is just to, through an executive order, <clears throat> go back into the deal. There would be some issues that would have to be resolved, but those would be resolved from within the deal where the U.S. would have regained the moral authority of having become a partner of the JCPOA again. And uh, it would also regain the, the leverage of being able to uh, trigger snapback sanctions on Iran if the Iranians were violating something. Instead, they chose to go through the negotiating, you know, try to renegotiate the deal, essentially. And it's been a year and a half, and it's been a failure. But if they had gone back in, I mean, right now, for instance, the Iranians have roughly 85 million barrels of oil that they have pumped out of the ground. 25 million are on tankers on the high seas, another 60 inside of Iran. They can't sell them because of U.S. sanctions. If U.S. were to go back into the deal, sanctions would be lifted. We would suddenly have a significant influx of oil onto the market at a time when Americans are hurting tremendously because of high oil prices, inflation, uh, and other countries in Europe are hurting even more. So if oil was the driving force behind this, then he could have actually gotten more by just going back into the Iran deal rather than going and begging the Saudis, frankly, in my view, humiliating himself and getting nothing for it. Hmm. it, it the, the Saudis and the Israelis are the major barrier here, are they not? Or, or is it that the Iranians are, are putting up new demands as well? I, I, I know that they've enriched a lot more uranium than they had before. Yes, yeah, certainly. The Iranians have done a lot of highly problematic things. They have expanded their program. They're refusing to talk directly with the United States, which has made these negotiations extremely challenging and difficult and time-consuming. Um, but I think ultimately at this point, uh, a big problem is that the Biden administration 
essentially says that there's nothing they can do to ensure that this deal can survive beyond their own term, but frankly, also potentially not even during their term. What the Iranians are worried about is that if the Republicans take the House and the Senate in November, then the Republicans are in a position to potentially take away the president's waiver rights. The way it works is this. The U.S. actually doesn't lift sanctions on Iran. It waives those sanctions. And the president can make a determination whether he thinks it's valid to waive those sanctions or not. So these are congressional sanctions, but the president has the right to waive them. Those waivers are written into the sanctions bill, so they're controlled by Congress. Congress can undo them. And then suddenly the president cannot waive sanctions, and as a result, the JCPA would collapse once more because the U.S. would not be able to fulfill its obligations. So we're talking about a situation in which Let's imagine that the deal is struck next week, at the end of July, and by November, three months later, it's dead again because of uh, uh, the Republicans taking over. Now, of course, the Republicans don't take the Congress until January. It may be difficult for them to do this, but the mere fact that they would try is sufficient to create a massive chilling effect amongst the business community and as a result make sure that they don't go back into the Iranian market in the first place. Right. So if we do it legislatively, they can reverse it if they seize control of the House and Senate. Uh, if we yeah. do it by executive order, they can re reverse it if they if they get control of the White House in two years. Um, so which raises the question in my mind. What's in it for the Republicans in destabilizing the Middle East and, and further empowering Iran? I don't get it. Well, uh, it's a question you would have to ask them. <laughs> but I can tell you that it seems like they're not really thinking about U.S. national interests or stability. They may be motivated by arms sales. I mean, we saw that Trump really liked the idea of selling far more weapons to the Saudis than the U.S. had done before. And the U.S. was already the biggest arms uh, provider to the Saudis. Uh, I think there's plenty of them that believe that some form of uh, confrontation with Iran is not only inevitable, it's desirable. And there's also some who believe that it is a way of helping Israel. I mean, there's all kinds of different factors. None of them, in my view, seem to actually be centered on what's good for the United States. Is, is a piece of it just that the original deal was negotiated by a Democratic president and a black president at that? I mean, let's not discount the racism that, that has seized the Republican Party. And they just don't want Obama to have any kind of legacy of consequence? I think that is a factor, but I think it's a factor more in Trump's mind necessarily than in, in the general GOP. Right. Uh, I think he was obsessed with undoing anything that had Obama's name on it. But, you know, Republicans were against the JCPA long before Trump. In fact, Trump wasn't even that hardcore against the JCPA during the campaign. Others were much more hawkish on that, on that issue. Right. And many of them clearly were... Um, uh, you know, listening and perhaps influenced by the thinking of those such as uh, uh, Sheldon Abrams, uh, Adelson uh, and his family and others who looked at this issue very much from the same perspective as the Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. Right. I, you know, I get where Israel is all bent out of shape about Hezbollah and its funding by the Iranians. And, you know, there's, there's a long historic background there. I don't understand why Saudi Arabia is opposed to the Iran deal. Well, from the Saudi perspective, the original opposition to the deal was not anything to do with whether you know the deal was strong enough or weak enough, whether it had enough uh, restrictions on their program, all of these different things that the Israelis were complaining about. For them, it was mostly, why are you making a deal with Iran? Are you looking to 
replace Saudi Arabia as a strategic partner and pivot Persia, so uh -huh. to say. They were afraid that this was the ticket for the United States to slowly but surely start disengaging militarily from the region and leave. And what they have benefited from, as have the Emiratis, as have the Israelis as well, is an unnatural, manufactured, artificial balance of power in the region, which is simply there because the U.S. has put its very heavy finger on the scale. It's a very beneficial balance for these states, but not a balance that any of them, with the potential exception of Israel, could actually achieve on its own. If the United States leaves, the region is going to recalibrate its balance, and it is not going to be as favorable towards Saudi Arabia and the UAE, because these are not, at the end of the day, particularly powerful states. Right. So, for them, it's, it's very selfish, obviously, but I have to say one thing. I don't think we can blame the Saudis for pursuing their interests here. Right. We should blame ourselves for not pursuing ours. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And <laughs> I'm laying a lot of this at the feet of the Republicans. Um, if, uh, last question, what, what is the future of Iran right now? The, there, there's this worldwide battle, it seems, between autocracy and democracy. Is there a consequential democracy movement in Iran? Or is it still firmly under the control of the, of the mullahs, of the, of the theocrats? What, you know, are there any bright... Uh, do, you, do you see any you know, favorable or positive things for the possibility of something like democracy in Iran? I saw plenty of hope and positive signs years ago. And a lot of them, if not most of them, were crushed by Trump uh, leaving the JCPOA, reimposing sanctions, crushing the Iranian economy, but also by Biden not going back into the deal. Mm -hmm. Because from the perspective of some of the reformists in Iran who were pushing for the deal and who were arguing that a large part of Iran's problems are going to be resolved if Iran can just work out its problems with the United States. That entire theory has fallen apart, not because Trump left. That was a big blow to it. But once Biden didn't go back in, one could no longer say that Trump was the aberration. Instead, it was Obama that was the aberration. Um. And that has been devastating for those in Iran who have been arguing in favor of some form of a reconciliation with the United States and even in some form of orientation towards the West. Uh, and, and, and that has been tremendously negative for democracy in Iran. That's very unfortunate. Dr. Trita Percy, thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate That's it. Always great talking with you. I always learn something. You thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. in Lake Havasu, Arizona. Hey, Kelly, what's on your mind today? Well, Tom, I just had some, uh, a little bit of insight because I, I went through a, a, a school while I was in the Army that was predominantly Secret Service and FBI. 
There's only a very few slots for the Army and Marines and Air Force and whatnot. Mm-hmm. In going through that course, I learned a lot. You know, as, as you can see through any footage of, of Secret Service, when they communicate with each other, it's always through a wrist. It's through a microphone on their wrist. And it's all radio transmissions back and forth. It's, it's their own secure network. So any text messages that are between agents, I would suspect, would be something that they don't want to get out, like maybe Pence won't get in the car. Mm-hmm. It would be that kind of stuff, because that wouldn't have gone out over the radio. Right. The radio is you know, predominantly for principal movements, right. and that's why it's a secure network all on its own, and it's not... That, that's why I think they're hiding this stuff where they destroyed this stuff. Just like uh, the same thing with Gina Haspel when she was running the CIA and they destroyed all those videotapes of the torture sessions, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Iraq that, you know, the, the, it would have reflected so badly on the agency. It would have been such a scandal that you would have had investigations going 16 ways to Sunday. And the CIA's, you know, uh, ability to survive as an agency was threatened by that. I think the, the, it may well be the same thing with the Secret Service right now. Does that make sense, Kelly? Yeah, I think uh, I think actually, if uh, if I had my say, and I'm a nobody, you know, but if I had my say, I would suspend every single member, and I would bring in the U.S. Marshals, I'd bring in the U.S. Army to protect the president until I got the Secret Service squared away. Yeah, that's um, how bad I think the agency is damaged right now. I, I am with you. I my I suspect the same thing. Uh, Kelly, thank you. Thanks for your insights. I appreciate it. Bill in Carbondale, Illinois. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. we got to do something about these NAW laws. These what laws? To me, they're worse. These NAW laws, you know, where the the day after the vote, the guy looks at the vote tally, and he's the guy who's supposed to certify things, and he just looks at it and says, nah. Oh. And, yeah. you know, he kicks it He kicks it to uh, some partisan board, and, and they end up, uh, you know, basically appointing whoever they want. I mean, these states have done that. These, they, to me, they've de-democratized that state. Yep. When they can just yeah, this is pick, happening in red know, states all across the country. And I'm tell you know, Tom, uh, back in the mid '80s, I was a paratrooper, right? And uh, I was very fortunate in that I, you know, I never uh, saw combat. The closest we ever came is when we we're on lockdown, uh, and we're, we're supposed to go to Panama and. You know, again, I, I never, we never ended up going. Most of the 82nd took care of that. I was art- artillery. And, uh, you know, we joked around when we were locked down those couple days. Uh, but, you know, I, w- I know I wasn't the only one, but I didn't, I didn't have butterflies in my stomach. I had bats. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and I'm telling you what, that's what I'm feeling these days. I haven't felt that since then, this ominous feeling. Yeah. And, uh, we just can't allow these, these like I call them, NAW laws. You know, the, the, if, if the November election, they haven't happened yet. These cannot be in place when that election comes in a few months. Yeah. Because well, to uh, me, I... that trap is set. And the first thing they'll say is, well, now you guys know how we feel having the election stolen. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally get it, Bill. Bill, I, again, I have no easy answers for this. But at first, we need to identify the problems. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything by Kelly Weil. This is from the prologue. 
The summer before he fell from the sky, Mike Hughes was experimenting with amateur jet propulsion. It was going badly. Problem again today, he texted me in August 2019. With the rocket or the weather, I asked. Rocket. This was his second failure in two days, and I'd lost count of the times he'd run into trouble with wind or parachutes or spare rocket parts that he'd purchase off Craigslist for 325 bucks. Most people would have given up years earlier, maybe taken up a less lethal hobby. I certainly thought he'd quit. He's got to know, right? I remember asking my husband. I was standing in our kitchen, texting Hughes with one hand and brandishing a spatula with the other, making an omelet while trying to talk Hughes out of launching himself into low orbit. Deep down, he's got to know Earth is round. That's why he keeps having these rocket failures. Earth is round and he doesn't want to prove it. I liked Mike. He was an offbeat guy, but a good one. We'd met the previous year at a conference for people who believe the Earth is flat. I was there as a journalist for the Daily Beast, the news website where I reported on extremist movements and conspiracy theories. He was there to drum up support for a self-manned rocket launch into the upper atmosphere, during which he would decide the planet's shape for himself. He and I sat around talking trash and the particulars of rocket science. Throughout the next year, he'd send me updates, pictures of rocket designs, gossip from the conspiracy scene, and invitations to more conspiracy conventions. This was not a guy with a death wish. This was a man who'd lived six bombastic decades and had no intention of stopping. So when he texted me about a summer's worth of rocket troubles, I thought it was his good sense finally rebelling against a bad idea. After all, who truly thought the Earth was flat? But Mad Mike Hughes was a believer in thrifted rocket parts, in back-of-the-envelope flight calculus, in himself, and most famously, in flat Earth. Flat Earth theory, the idea for which Hughes was willing to shoot himself into the stratosphere, represents a profound misunderstanding of the world. But the theory and those who believe it are also misunderstood by the world at large. I've spent years hobnobbing with flat earthers at conferences across the United States and interviewing them on weekends, becoming the friend of some and the enemy of others. Some have called me for legal advice, and others have labeled me a saboteur out to sink their movement. Ally or arch nemesis of flat earthers, I've spent enough time among them to sympathize with them on one key grievance. Nearly every common assumption about flat earth is wrong. Maybe you learned as a kid that people expected Christopher Columbus to sail off the edge of a flat planet. Or maybe you've seen people refer to flat earth, uh, to flat earth an example of a backwards thinking ideology held in Europe's Middle Ages. The truth is that by at least the fifth century BC, Greek astronomers and mathematicians had already determined that the earth was round and had popularized the formulas that proved their calculations. By Columbus's day, the globe model had been the default for centuries. In fact, we can credit the Columbus Flat Earth myth to Rip Van Winkle author Washington Irving, who seems to have more or less invented it in his heavily embellished Columbus biography in the 1820s. Flat Earth theory is a new idea, one that emerged in a utopian commune in England decades after Irving's account of Columbus. It simmered in hardcore religious communities in the United States in the early 1900s, found a home with moon landing skeptics in the back half of the 20th century and skyrocketed to popularity in the late 2010s, the same time Mike Hughes was teaching himself rocket science. Hughes was a walking reminder of the other mistake people make about the movement, that flat earthers are wackos, daisons of society's fringes. But flat earthers exist among us, often so inconspicuously that you'd never notice until you asked. Some are parents, some are self-taught aerospace engineers, 
Some are professional athletes. Some are clever, some are kind, some are neither. And at least two have released bad rap songs that praise both Flat Earth and Adolf Hitler. On the whole, however, Flat Earthers comprise a spectrum of people who are seldom much different or any dumber than the rest of us. Their theory typically claims Earth is as flat as a Frisbee, surrounded by ice at its perimeter and maybe enclosed by a great impenetrable dome. The details vary from believer to believer. Most flat earthers, but not all, do not believe in outer space. Though many are dismissive of gravity as a concept, some claim that the planet is constantly accelerating upwards, while others disagree and claim that the only reason we don't drift off the ground like escape party balloons is because humans are heavier than air. But unless you find yourself in an argument over the theory's nuances at a flat earth conference, they are of secondary importance. Flat Earth is best understood not as a viable science with meaningful specifics, but as the ultimate incarnation of conspiratorial thinking. Members of the movement believe governments and scientists are actively peddling a global lie in order to control the world by tarnishing religious teachings or by making people feel insignificant next to the great expanse of outer space. For the past 150 plus years, this bizarre theory has grown by borrowing age-old mistrusts and exploiting new forms of communication, from newspapers to radio to eventually, explosively, the Internet. The book is by Kelly Weil. It's titled Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. And welcome back. Bill in Sun City, Arizona. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hi, Tom. Tom. The first three words of the Constitution are, we the people. The 12th and the 13th words are established justice. And I think that's where the trouble lies. How so? We failed to establish, we failed to establish justice. Well, we, we really have. We created a court What's system. Just, I mean, go But ahead. we haven't established justice. We've, we've established an unjust court system, an unjust government. Where's the justice in Citizens United? We've let it go. We, there has to be more discussion on what is just and what is unjust. That's a and, good point. You know, and there has to be a lot more discussion. Tom, you have to discuss it. You know, I understand that since World War II, the right side has captured the, the, the message. That is, five corporations own all the information going outward. I understand that. We have to establish justice. So any suggestions on we, how to do that, Bill, other than repealing Citizens United? Examining all of our laws. Mm. Where is the justice in our laws? When they propose laws, tell me where it's just. Yeah. I want more discussion on justice. Okay. I want to live in a just democracy. Yeah. Not just the time. I, I, I get it. I totally get it. Bill, thank you. Excellent point. Well made. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethicott, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaugh, Chase Spross, and the folks who run our uh, chat room over on YouTube. Thank you to you all. And thank you for listening and watching our program. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Yeah.